bringing you up to speed on the latest in conservation, science, and responsible hunting in Canada. Hey everyone, it's Mark Hall, and you're listening to the Round Canada Podcast. Hey, there's been a lot going on since the last episode, so hang on, I got a lot to cover here. One of the most controversial hunting regulation changes that I've seen in a long time occurred here this spring in British Columbia. If you're from BC, you're probably very familiar with the uh, closure of caribou hunting and the reduction of moose harvest in Region 7B, the Peace Region of Northeastern BC. So if you're not, uh, I'll just give you a little bit of a background. So this spring was kind of the deadline for all of the new hunting regulation proposals to be uh, wrapped up, uh, approved by government and the hunting regulations for the next two years published. Right at the last minute, the province of BC came out with a proposal, they extended the public input period and it was a super controversial proposal um, in the Peace Region. And it was the complete closure of all caribou hunting in Region 7B and about a 50% reduction in the moose harvest slash number of moose hunters that would be going up to that region to hunt uh, and a change from moose hunting from the general open season to limited entry hunting. The premise behind this proposal stems from a Supreme Court of BC decision called the Yehi decision. And a number of years ago, the Blueberry River First Nation, who is a First Nation member of the Treaty 8 group of First Nations. Treaty 8 is a a treaty that covers a number of First Nations in British Columbia, Alberta, and up into the Yukon and I believe Northwest Territories. And the Blueberry River First Nations took the province of BC to court for all of the decades and decades of approvals of industrial projects in their territory that have led to massive cumulative impacts to the land which were violations of their treaty rights um, to treaty rights that gave them uh, guarantees that they could hunt and uh, fish and trap and use the land um, uh, as they wished so The Supreme Court of BC uh, ruled in favor of the Blueberry River First Nations and basically said, yeah, the government has um, been allowing a free-for-all for industrial activities in the Blueberry River First Nations territories, oil and gas development, coal mining, forestry, mineral mining, all of those types of activities. Uh, The impact to the land up there was extensive. So that's that kind of kicked off uh, a whole bunch of um, reconfiguration of how government wanted to do business in the Treaty 8 uh, portion of northeastern British Columbia. So they came out with this proposal to close caribou hunting and reduce the moose uh, hunting in the region as a response to the Yehi decision. Now the Yehi decision, the court said nothing about hunting no impacts to First Nations treaty rights because resident hunters and outfitters were operating in the Treaty 8 area. It was strictly to do with the cumulative impacts of industrial activities on the landscape. But the province's response to industrial impacts on the landscape was to significantly reduce hunting, resident hunters and non-resident hunters 
in this region. So of course that sparked a huge controversy in the hunting community in British Columbia because there was no scientific reason, no scientific basis for conservation to cut back the number of moose hunters uh, or caribou hunters in the region. So most of region 7b has incredibly high densities of moose, highest in all of British Columbia. Population estimates put the numbers of moose in the region at about 60,000 moose. Scientifically, scientists agree that about a 15% harvest rate is sustainable for moose populations. British Columbians were harvesting about 2 to 3% uh, of the moose population up there. So well below sustainable harvest levels, the moose population and hunting was sustainable. Uh, so, so hunters in the province saw no conservation reason, no biological reason, no scientific reason for the closures of caribou hunting, caribou populations that could be hunted in the northeast were fine and healthy. Uh, the moose populations, like I said, were incredibly robust with low harvest levels. And so they were just completely baffled um, by this decision. So a lot of groups were coming out saying that essentially the province was trading off industrial approvals for more industrial projects by taking away um, hunting opportunity for British Columbians. During the time that this case was before the courts, the province of BC continued to review and improve industrial projects in the Blueberry River First Nations territories. And over the time before the decision was handed down, there was over 190 um, industrial natural resource extraction projects were approved to continue going on ahead. Then the Yehi decision came down and said the government had been approving too many projects and impacted the nation's treaty rights. So this proposal went out for public comment. It was an extended period. Thousands of people wrote in an objection to it. They saw no scientific reason, biological reason for it. But at the end of the day, the Minister of Forest here in British Columbia went forward and approved this new hunting season. Um, so the press release um, from the province of BC came out and said the changes to the hunting regulations support reconciliation. So it was, the government was saying this is part of what we're doing to reconcile past impacts to First Nations rights. Um, the province also said that the decision to reduce open season dates for non-Indigenous hunters were made in quote-unquote partnership with First Nations. But after the province released that press release, the uh, chiefs of all of the nations in, or several of the nations in the peace region released a joint uh, public statement and expressed their disapproval of these changes to the hunting regulations. One of the chiefs said in the press release that the regulatory changes are a unilateral action of the Minister of Forest that do not reflect the proposals advanced by Treaty 8 First Nations. Um, she, the chief went on to say, she said her proposal sought to protect treaty rights while balancing the interests of neighboring resident hunters and guide outfitters. The province in their press release said that these decisions were informed by extensive engagement with the public, First Nations, the Guide Outfitters Association of British Columbia, and the BC Wildlife Federation. So 
uh, as I just said, the First Nations came out and said, no, this is not what we talked about. This is not what we asked for um, in our government to government conversations about reconciling uh, impacts from the Yehi decision. I know that the government took a tremendous amount of flack from resident hunters of the province, uh, writing into the ministers, calling into their offices, objecting, saying, please don't approve this. There's no reason to. The Guide Outfitters Association of BC and the BC Wildlife Federation, I know, were publicly opposed to a significant reduction um, in the moose harvest in the region. The impacts to the guide outfitters would have been going from um, a lot of outfitters, moose would have been, you know, their bread and uh, butter sort of um, uh, hunts. So some of the early numbers that I heard, the predictions were that about if, if the moose season was reduced and went to limited entry, that the outfitters, about 65 outfitters in the region would have to split about 45 moose tags. Don't know if that's exactly how the numbers worked out because the limited entry tags have since been published. So basically some of the outfitters up there, we're not going to be able to have moose hunts this fall. That's kind of how I, I read um, what was going on. The, uh, the government in their press releases on this controversial decision also came out and said uh, the province, regional First Nations, and affected stakeholders will continue to work together to develop an approach to wildlife co-management that improves shared understanding and management of the wildlife resources in a manner consistent with the Together for Wildlife strategy. However, on April 8th, the Minister's Wildlife Advisory Council, which is a council of, I believe, 18 independent advisors, uh, experts, First Nations, scientists, all those sorts of things that sit on a council to advise the minister on wildlife management in the province. They sent the minister a letter prior to this decision being released that said, amongst everything that it said, this is a key, key statement. <clears throat> Nonetheless, the proposal and process in determining the regulations did not follow the Together for Wildlife principles. So this is what has baffled hunters in British Columbia. So a significant number of moose hunters will not have the opportunity um, to go hunt moose um, like they've been doing for years in the Peace region. I think the estimates were about three to 4,000 people um, went to the Peace region to hunt. It's large. It covers about 22% of the entire province of BC. Um, so lots of room, lots of moose, low harvest rates. And, and so hunters are just baffled by this. Um, the province is saying they did this in partnership with First Nations for reconciliation. First Nations are saying, no, you didn't. This isn't, this isn't what we asked for. Uh, the province is saying uh, or inferring, in my interpretation, that they got the nod from Guide Outfitters and the BC Wildlife Federation, which is not true. As I said, both those organizations, in my opinion, were publicly opposed to this proposal. And uh, the province came out and said that this decision was consistent with the Together for Wildlife strategy, yet the advisors on the Wildlife Advisory Council said no, it did not follow the principles set forth for the cooperative Together for Wildlife process in the province. So 
I can't understand it. There's no scientific reason. Um, moose are not a conservation concern up there. Neither are the caribou. It's just a baffling, baffling decision. Like I said at the start, this is probably one of the most controversial and and just gobsmacked decisions that I've ever seen uh, made in hunting in Canada for a long time. The UBC Okanagan Collegiate Chapter of the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers British Columbia Chapter after this decision came out, posted this, and I think this sums it up well. The caribou and moose hunting changes implemented in the Peace Liard region, an area encompassing 22% of BC, will go down as one of the darkest chapters in BC wildlife management history. So one of the things we, you know, we don't hear a lot about in the news um, is conflict with polar bears, um, human polar bear conflict. Um, I know in the Churchill area, um, Hudson Bay area, there's, you know, a lot goes on in the community of, of you know, uh, alarm systems and bears being moved in and the famous uh, polar bear jail and Churchill and stuff and bears being relocated away from people. But um, as far as polar bears actually like being um, destroyed because of you know, conflict or threats to people. It doesn't seem to be in the news a whole lot. Uh, not like black bears anyways. So recently um, in Quebec's Gaspé Peninsula region, uh, a big male polar bear wandered quite a bit south and ended up um, hanging around near the town of Madeleine Centre uh, in Quebec, which is uh, about five, 600 kilometers north of Quebec City uh, along the St. Lawrence River. And this bear started to concern wildlife managers. Uh, as you know, polar bears are classified as one of the only bears which will actively hunt humans for food. Um, we're just upright seals to them. Uh, unlike other bears that may kind of, you know, flirt in and out of predatory behavior, polar bears are locked on us, um, you know, all the time. They just, we're all stake to a polar bear. Uh, a scientist from the University of Alberta, uh, one of the world's uh, eminent experts in polar bears, Dr. Ian Sterling, uh, said that it's it's not that unusual for uh, polar bears to wander this far away from their like traditional territories, um, you know, near the ocean and the, and the sea ice and stuff, uh, especially for males uh, to wander and explore and you know and see what's out there. Apparently, this male was big. He was very healthy and very fat, um, so he was not wandering out of starvation or, you know, searching for food. So the, the sad part about it is uh, the, the, the story I read on it was the wildlife managers up in that area just weren't equipped to, to deal with a polar bear showing up near a town. Um, they were equipped to tranquilize black bears. They weren't equipped with the right you know, I gather amounts and equipment and stuff to handle um, something as large as a large male polar bear. And they really had to make uh, a decision before something bad happened and the polar bear was um, euthanized. So, yeah, like I said, uh, you know, at least out here living in the West, uh, this is not something we hear a lot about. We're always, you know, every other day there's some 
controversial story in the, the papers out of the lower mainland of British Columbia about a black bear that, that was put down or something. But, um, you know, maybe this is something if, you know, it was a little bit more privy to what was going on in eastern Canada or, or the Arctic, maybe we'd hear a little bit more, you know, more about this. But so, I mean, hey, if you live in that part of Canada and you know a little bit more about uh, polar bears, conflict management, bears that are, are destroyed, how how does that go down in your communities? Is it controversial? Does it divide your communities? Um, you know, what's what's the uh, what's the general sentiment towards having to manage polar bears uh, in human polar bear conflict management? Uh, let me know. Uh, I'm trying to learn a little bit more about all of these sorts of things across the country and share that with all of the listeners. And um, so, some insight would be kind of cool on polar bear conflict. Staying on the topic of polar bears. Um, the Nunavut government has, or the federal government has released uh, an update to a polar bear manage, its polar bear management plan. And it's very controversial. Um, hunters, uh, Inuit hunters in Nunavut are, are quite unhappy with an aspect of the new polar bear management plan proposal that's been put on the table, especially for the polar bear subpopulations in the Gulf of Boothia region in Nunavut. Um, so this is a very healthy bear population. Estimates are around 1,600 bears, very high density of bears. So numbers of bears per you know, square kilometer is quite high. And it sounds like what the federal government is planning to do is to cut back on the number of bears that Inuits can take or the number of tags um, that are issued for uh, the Inuit communities. They, they don't actually issue tags. The system that they have here in Canada is they issue credits um, for the subpopulations. And you're issued so many credits and how the Inuit hunters choose um, to use those credits, you use, you use up credits. So if you harvest a big male, um, you might use fewer credits. If you uh, take a female or a young female or a breeding age female, that might cost you a whole bunch of credits. So if you want to harvest the maximum number of males or numbers of polar bears um, to go around the community, then the focus on the least amount of impact on your credits is uh, big mature males. So it sounds like in this proposal, which has upset the Inuit hunters and none of it is uh, cutting back. The Nunavut hunters are saying there are lots of polar bears in the area. We think they're increasing. We're seeing more aggressive behavior towards um, Inuit people of the bears. They feel that the quota could actually be increased from 100 bears, from 74 to 100 bears a year rather than being reduced. Now, another controversial aspect to this polar bear management plan change is, as I understand it, these credits can be transferred from year to year. So if there's unused credits, they get transferred over to the next year and you can continue to harvest those, those polar bears. Polar bears are long lived. So, you know, the, the, um, the rationale of managing them on, on a year to year basis, as opposed to sort of a rolling long term does make sense to me. So yeah, that's, that's quite controversial uh, with the Inuit, Inuit hunters. Uh, I've seen this in a number of different places in the Arctic where uh, Inuit are saying, you know, hey, we think we can harvest more bears. Um, you know, it's food for us. We use the furs. 
there is some revenue um, from polar bear uh, hides sold on the international market. Uh, one of the statements I read from uh, Inuit hunters in the story said they're less concerned about the revenue aspect from the hides and more concerned with maintaining their culture, the relationship to the polar bear, um, hunting for food and utilizing the fur um, in, in their own communities first and foremost. And so reducing the number of polar bears that they can take directly affects uh, Inuit hunters, cultures, and Inuit communities and their way of life. And so they're pushing back against that. Again, staying on the topic of polar bears, uh, in mid-May, there was a new scientific paper published in the scientific journal called Journal Frontiers in Conservation Science. The paper was called Polar Bear Harvest Patterns Across the Circumpolar Arctic. Uh, one of the authors, Dr. Andrew DeRoger from the University of Alberta in Edmonton, he was on the podcast with Curtis and I a few years ago talking about polar bears and polar bear research, is one of the authors of this paper along with uh, a few of his colleagues from Norway and the United States that co-authored the paper. So what these scientists did is they took uh, a massive data set from 1970 to 2018 of polar bears harvested all across the circumpolar region. So that involved um, Canada, United States, Greenland, and Norway. And during that time period, um, there was just under 40,000 uh, polar bears harvested across um, the entire Arctic, um, about 797 bears per year. About two-thirds of those bears are actually harvested, were harvested in Canada, uh, and then the remaining split between Greenland, U.S., and, and Norway. So a number of years ago, Canada was a signator to an international agreement on polar bear, circumpolar bear um, management, and it required, that international agreement required science-based management of polar bear harvests. Unlike the previous story of moose management in northeastern BC um, that didn't have a science-based aspect to it, Canada has agreed that it'll manage polar bears and polar bear harvests by science. One of the key aspects of a science-based harvest regime for polar bears, scientists have said if your harvest rate is around 4.5%, that's the target rate, that's sustainable. And if you're harvesting more males than females, that's important. And the ratio is about 2 to 1. So... Over the last uh, 20 years, um, the scientists concluded that generally this harvest target rate of 4.5% um, is being met. They said every one of the subpopulation management units they looked at at some time during this entire um, span of time had some fairly significant over harvest. Um, but it seemed to just occur like for short periods, they were rare events. But overall, um, the scientists were saying that all of the circumpolar countries are meeting about a 4.5% target rate. And they're all meeting on average over the long term about two males for every female um, that's harvested. So yes, uh, as controversial as what it is, um, polar bear management amongst all these circumpolar countries uh, is sustainable. And Inuit hunters continue to uh, 
uh, live their way of life and harvest polar bears sustainably, other than in the Gulf of Boothia region in Canada, they actually think um, sustainably they can harvest more rather than being cut back. Now, switching to narwhals, staying in the, in the Canadian Arctic, Nunavut hunters from the Mitamitaklik Hunter and Trappers Organization are very concerned about narwhal numbers in and around the mining company Baffinlands Mary River Iron Ore Mine. They're saying they're struggling to harvest enough polar bear or polar bears, narwhals, um, to feed their families, and they are attributing that to the shipping traffic from the iron ore mine. All the ore is shipped out by a large um, uh, ocean liners, and they're concerned about that. One of the big concerns that the Nunavut hunters pointed out was they felt that the ice breaking ships and activity to get ships in and out of the mine in the springtime was incredibly detrimental to narwhals as they were migrating back into the waters around the mine, which is where the hunters would hunt for them in the spring of the year. Um, the mining company Baffinland agreed to cut back on uh, spring ice breaking uh, a couple of years ago, but basically now they've came forward and said that they intend to resume um, ice breaking probably right now this spring, um, and they've done away with it. So the mining company um, Baffinland Iron Mines Corporation began shipping ore from the Mary River mine in 2015. Under its permits, the mine is obligated to conduct census of the narwhals in and around the waters of the mine. So in 2016, the first population estimate was a little over 12,000 narwhals. Last year in 2021, that estimate had dropped to around 2,600 narwhals. So this is what is concerning the Nunavut hunters. They are seeing a direct correlation between the shipping activity from the mine and the decrease in the numbers of narwhals and their struggling efforts to find enough narwhals um, for sustenance. Now layered on top of this, the Baffinland Iron Mines Corporation is seeking to expand the Mary River Iron Ore Mine, which is near Pond Inlet. So it actually wants to double its annual output from 6 to 12 million tons of ore per year. So obviously that's probably going to double the amount of shipping, shipping traffic in and out of the mine, which is um, going to potentially be devastating for narwhals. Um, I, I would probably say the Nunavut hunters are going to say that, you know, this could be the end of the narwhals to, to double the shipping traffic when they're already concerned and saying, the shipping traffic has significantly reduced the population already. So the Nunavut Impact Review Board uh, has actually recommended to the federal government to reject um, the proposal to expand the uh, Mary River mine. Um, so now this decision rests with the federal um, Northern Affairs Minister um, to make a decision. Uh, the last I know the decision had not been made, so I will keep you up to date on uh, the future of narwhals um, off the tip of Baffin Island. 
in the Canadian Arctic. All right, so switching gears, uh, gun control legislation's been in the news a lot in Canada for a couple of years. It started to go started a couple of years ago with the big announcement about um, the ban um, and buyback of these quote unquote um, assault and military um, type firearms that existed out there and more recently um, some additional regulations under um, Bill C-71, there's Bill C-71 and Bill C-21. Um, some new regulations came into effect uh, on 18th of May in Canada where individuals, me selling you uh, a firearm out of my cabinet or a sports store selling a firearm to a customer are now required to do background checks um, on the prospective buyer. Um, they are supposed to phone the register of firearms, uh, give them the purchaser's information uh, as well as their firearm certificate and they will verify that the person is legally allowed to obtain a firearm. Uh, currently, sports stores, gun stores and stuff have to verify that you have a um, firearms license, but now they have to collect a bunch of information on you and then get that validated by the Registrar of Firearms. The federal government has come out and said this is not going to be an onerous process. It should only take two to three minutes uh, on the phone to get validation of a purchaser's um, right to uh, purchase a firearm. So that I would like to see. Um, as you know, um, phoning numbers nowadays to get someone to help you is you know you get the proverbial we're experiencing higher than normal call volumes your wait time is going to be 48 minutes you know this sort of thing so they're saying two to three minutes so the big concern about this registration is opponents to the bill are coming out and saying that this is essentially another form of the long run registry in Canada. Even though the federal government is saying it's not because there the federal government is not the ones that are in possession of your personal information, which firearms you've purchased in a central database, that information is now going to be held by um, gun stores and sports stores they're the ones that are going to be required to keep records of these transactions. The RCMP can then apply to the courts to go to a gun store and ask for that registration information. So opponents to the bill are basically saying um, that's a registry system. The Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters, of which have really been a champion on um, firearms uh, ownership um, issues in the country uh, made a statement on their website and they said much like the failed long gun registry these license validation and retailer record keeping regulations are more window dressing that has siphoned off much needed public attention public policy improvements and decades of resources from real public safety concerns related to crime violence and the illegal use of firearms now layered on top of this has been a, another regulation uh, moved forward under Bill C-21. It was introduced into the House of Commons at the very end of May and it's what um, the media is calling a national freeze 
on importing, buying, selling, and otherwise transferring handguns in the country. So once this legislation comes into full force, there's some provisions, as I understand it, in the regulations when they take effect. There has to be some things done by a firearm subcommittee, then back to the House of Commons, it's sort of approved, and then there'll be an effective date after such and such a date. Um, no more importing, um, buying, selling, or transferring handguns. Right now, even though the bill was introduced uh, at the end of May, um, it technically isn't taking effect, and there's been a national um, spike in um, handgun sales, uh, record sales actually in some sports stores, gun stores down in Vancouver selling more firearms or handguns in a week than they would um, in a previous, uh, like an entire month period. So some of the stuff uh, I've seen analysts are saying um, the reason the government did this is because they're allowing uh, gun stores to uh, clear out inventory and then that's it. You can't import any more new handguns to sell them into the country. Uh, they don't have a buyback program because they don't want to spend the money um, to buy handguns back or, or reimburse um, gun stores for inventory that uh, was unsold. So the the logic here is how is this related to um violent crime and the illegal use of firearms handguns in particular that's kind of a baffling thing to opponents essentially what this is as i see it and some of the what i've gleaned from some of the analysts that are looking at um these bills is this is a long-term process of eliminating all handguns <clears throat> in canada because once this bill takes effect, no one will ever be able to sell or transfer a handgun. So whoever buys a handgun today that's of legal age, um, if they're a younger person of legal age and they got a restricted firearms license, at some point in the future, 60, 70, 80 years from now, that person will pass away. That handgun does not belong to their estate. They can't will it to a family member, and then the family member applies for a license to obtain that firearm. The government will take that handgun upon the death of the individual. So some of the things that I've seen, what folks are saying about this is this is a long-term step to completely eliminating, once and for all, all handguns from, uh, from the country. Now... Hunters are always very interested in gun control legislation. A lot going down on the U.S. Um, I see the situation in Canada as being quite different um, than in the United States, uh, but some similarities. So hunters are always concerned, I think, that, you know, eventually the gun control legislation is going to turn on hunters, and we're going to start seeing our traditional walnut stock hunting rifles and shotguns become targets of gun control legislation and having to relinquish those and essentially be the end of hunting in this this country some hunters are saying what they've seen so far in the last couple of the years <clears throat> uh, with gun control who cares um, we don't need these um, quote-unquote uh, assault weapon type uh, things for hunting um, can't use handguns for hunting anyways so you know who cares let them let them take this stuff. It doesn't affect us. Other hunters are incredibly concerned. 
you know, about this and what this bodes for the future. Um, obviously, there are more people in this country that would probably, if they could, vote today to say no one should own any type of firearm than there are people in this country that say, yes, we should own ha uh, firearms for a variety of reasons, from recreational competition shooting through to hunting and trapping. So in that respect, hunters and myself are concerned about this. Last year, um, when the gun control bill uh, was first introduced, it actually did affect um, a couple of typical hunting firearms. One was a restriction on the energy, uh, muzzle energy of a firearm, which then uh, prohibited uh, certain types of long rifles that a hunter might use if they were going to, say, uh, Africa. Uh, was, it's now prohibited to own a 416 Rigby in Canada, uh, as far as I know. And one of the uh, controlled definitions, firearm control definitions, uh, actually got people all concerned that that was going to um, ban 12-gauge shotguns because uh, of the, the bore diameter and the threads for uh, um, uh, chokes in shotguns. The RCMP came out and subsequently um, clarified that it didn't know it does not affect um, threaded bores in 12-gauge shotguns. But, but there was, you know, a little bit of overlap. The Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters, um, through one of their staff members, Matt DeMille, um, produced a long report that went to legislators uh, in Ottawa that basically was about a year-long study that Matt um, conducted trying to ascertain what is a hunting firearm in this country. H how do we define a hunting firearm to know that regulators and the public are never going to want to come after your woodstock or synthetic stock deer gun but they're always going to be going after these Hollywood style looking firearms. What, what actually differentiates? As you know, if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably a hunter or a shooter. You would know that you could have a 308 rifle, uh, exact cartridge, exact chamber. Everything's the same. Pull the trigger, goes bang, barrel, go, a bullet goes out the end of the barrel. And that could be in a, um, on a rifle platform, that's this, I don't like to use the worm assault weapons uh, because it's not a real thing, but it could be on that style of platform, the flat black, um, the modular composite stocks, uh, you know, those sorts of things. Or it could be in a 60-year-old uh, woodstock hunting rifle, that exact same caliber, same performance, same bullet, interchangeable to these two weapons that look completely different regulating one weapon but not the other and so Matt did this study to kind of go how are we going to legally define what's a hunting rifle which is okay and what's not and basically that study Curtis he was on the show with Curtis um, and I on the hunter conservationist podcast last year talking about this and essentially there is really no way other than just saying well that one um, of actually defining what a hunting firearm is because regardless of how they look they can all be used by hunting because they have the same legal magazine capacity the same um, calibers and the individual could choose whichever style of firearm however it looks uh, to use for for hunting so so that's that's a little bit of the background I think why hunters are always 
concern about gun control legislation, even if on things like handguns, we can't carry them while we're hunting, we can't use them for hunting. Um, so they're always following along on the story because they're, they're, like I said, they're waiting for the day that this gun control legislation goes good. We've taken care of all this controversial looking firearms. Let's go after these ones. That's a fear for some. Others say, ah, no, you're just fear mongering by, by talking that way. But I'll leave you with this. Um, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau uh, made a statement when Bill C-21 on the handgun, national handgun freeze uh, was tabled. And he said, quote unquote, some of the strongest measures in Canadian history to keep guns out of our communities and build a safer future for everyone. I just find it interesting that he said guns. It's to keep guns out of our communities. He didn't say handguns. He just said guns. So read into that what you want. Um, because he was referring to the hand, national handgun freeze, maybe guns meant handguns. Or if you're a little bit more skeptical and think that the long-term agenda in this country is complete removal of all firearms, even from hunters, um, this could be an inkling into that philosophy that the only way communities in this country can be safe is if no one owns a gun. So in the springtime, I was doing some stories about all of the controversy around Canada geese uh, in and around Stanley Park down in the Vancouver area, British Columbia, and how everybody hates Canada geese. There's different areas uh, in BC and um, the Okanagan area where people just hate Canada geese because they poop all over the place. Um, there's been some um, specialists out there in goose poopology. They know how many times a day a goose poops, how much there is, what the daily output of goose poop is, and uh, it's on benches and sidewalks and beaches and everything. And you know, people hate hate geese and. Down in Stanley Park, there uh, the Parks Board are um, issuing permits to go in and destroy the eggs in goose nests as a way to try to control their population. They're either taking the eggs, freezing them, killing the embryo, and putting these dead eggs back in the nest, or they're um, addling them by shaking them or oiling them so the embryo dies. Uh, these these sorts of things uh, quite controversial. Well, this story kind of continues Canada's. Um, uh, love affair with hating the Canada goose. So New Brunswick has hit the news with um, Canada geese. Um, people in New Brunswick in some areas, in the urban areas and parks, um, are hating on Canada geese. They're calling them a nuisance. They're headaches in urban settings. Uh, they're pooping on everything, pooping in the parks. New Brunswick didn't have Canada geese decades and decades ago. For whatever reason, I don't know if it was uh, population declines in North America from turn of the century, colonial days of overhunting, or whether they just were never on sort of the, the eastern flyway. But anyways, back in the 1990s, um, Canada geese were, uh, populations were expanding in the parks of Toronto. And people living in Toronto decided that they no longer liked Canada geese, they hated them, and they wanted them gone. So over the f first half of the 1990s, around 4,000 geese were gathered up in Ontario and sent to New Brunswick uh, in an effort to create a population for Newbrook's, New Brunswick hunters to hunt. 
geese are great tasting. I just had some uh, goose burgers the other night. They're awesome. I lived in New Brunswick. Why wouldn't you want to have a Canada goose to hunt? Except these Canada geese in New Brunswick decided to stay out of the, um, the rural areas. They took up uh, the urban settings, the parks, the ponds, you know, golf courses, all that kind of stuff. And they pushed people over the edge and they hate them and they want something done with them. Same story out of Manitoba um, in and around Memorial Park. Uh, Memorial Park. Um, Canada geese are getting into the waterways, the ponds, the fountains. They're pooping. Um, people are getting annoyed. Um, the smell in the summertime is, is uh, turning people off. The province has put in these uh, sound systems and scary things to try to scare the, um, the Canada geese away. And it's kind of apparently it's not working too successfully. So now in Saskatchewan, there's a different story going on. Not with Canada geese, but with snow geese. Snow geese populations of North America have skyrocketed. From what I understand, it's because of the extensive agriculture lands across the North American continent. There's just more food for geese that have ever existed at any time in history on this continent. The snow geese populations have skyrocketed way more than Canada geese to the point where when the snow geese return to the Canadian Arctic, the ecosystem in the Arctic has never had to deal with that many snow geese and they're wreaking havoc on the sensitive Arctic ecosystems uh, in the spring and the summer, kind of like uh, cattle or sheep overgrazing, um, you know, sensitive uh, habitats. These snow geese apparently are up in the Canadian Arctic just wreaking havoc on, on the delicate ecosystem. Um, all across Canada and the United States, wildlife managers are trying to liberalize snow geese seasons, either taking off bag limits. They have spring seasons, which has typically been a no-no for wildlife or waterfowl conservation, is you can hunt them when they're migrating south to the wintering grounds in the fall. But generally in North America, waterfowl were left in the springtime because they're heading back to their breeding grounds to make more little birds um, for the fall. And, uh, so they've, they've liberalized, they're try trying to, you know, deal with snow goose populations. So anyways, as the snow has been melting in Saskatchewan, there's been dead snow geese showing up all over, you know, um, farmers fields and across the landscape and stuff due to the avian flu, which I talked about in the last story. So unlike Stanley Park, New Brunswick, Manitoba, Manitoba urban areas where folks are hating on the Canada geese. People in Saskatchewan are quite upset by all these snow geese that are dying of the avian flu. One of the CBC stories I read, a Saskatchewan resident said, I was so heartbroken to see them so affected by the avian flu. This is so interesting to me that snow geese are more abundant um, and people feel bad for them because they're dropping out of the sky. But Canada geese, which are abundant, um, they want them to drop out of the sky in a lot of the urban areas. And, and you know, I'm trying to learn, like, what, what causes people to go over this tipping point? We love, we love the wildlife. We love them. We love seeing them. Now we hate them. 
get rid of them. What is that tipping point? When does that inflection occur when people go from loving to hating wildlife? There's some correlations here between the Canada geese and the hate for them being in populated urban areas and urban parks of our larger centers in Canada. And the urban folks have less tolerance for goose poop in their pretty parks. In Saskatchewan, maybe more of an agriculture, rural lifestyle, um, you know, that sort of um, communities and ethos, people are actually very um, sad and heartbroken to see uh, something like the avian flu affecting snow geese, even though they're one of the most abundant or overabundant uh, waterfowl species on the North American continent. Uh, it, is it a rural urban thing? Um, it is, is it a Saskatchewan thing? Um, but this, this, the reason I covered these stories is because this concept of this tipping point of what drives people from wildlife are cool, they're fun, we like them, to like, okay, stop, get it off. Urban deer, same story. Geese, ducks, same story. Squirrels, ground squirrels, black bears, like, like you name it. Even people get um, the same thing with woodpeckers, you know, on the side of their house. Um, robins beating themselves on your rearview mirror, your vehicle, pooping all down the vehicle. At, at what point, like what drives people over this edge? And, and the tipping point has actually occurred where it's driven people over the edge that they take matters into their own hands. Um, I believe a lot of times you see these stories about deer walking around in urban centers with, a, with an arrow stuck out of the side of their head or their neck. That's not hunters trying to shoot the deer. It's people that are fed up. They go by a, a crossbow because you don't need a firearms license for it. And they try to shoot this deer that's eating their roses off their deck. They don't know what they're doing and they, they stick an arrow in, you know, in, in the wrong place. I lived in a location where the person was so had such a hate for the white-tailed deer that came in to feed on his lawn that he would slide the basement window open, stick the barrel of his 22 out and go and stick a bullet through the stomach of the deer. So the deer would leave his property, uh, leave his property and over the next couple years or a couple months or days or weeks or whatever, this deer would die a slow agonizing death somewhere back in the woods and, and, and not, not on his, on his property where he has to get rid of it. And, and these are really horrific stories, uh, rodent poison, the way people stick their hoses down, you know, gopher holes in, in their yard and stuff like that and drown them and, and the little litters and stuff like that. It's just something drives people over the edge. Um, and this is a very interesting subject for me because I just don't like it when I hear people talking about, we hate wildlife, get rid of them. Not everybody's like that, but there's definitely a tipping point that does put, um, people over the edge. So what are your thoughts? Share that with me. <laughs> what, what do you think drives it? Part of what I believe it is, one of my theories is, as human beings, we're no different than any other wildlife that exists or has ever existed on earth. We have genetics programmed into us to be territorial. 
we have personal space and we have territory space. We have families or protective of the family unit of our habitat. And so we're tolerant of other wildlife species, some types. Uh, our tolerance levels might be in, in different places for different animals, depending on their threat to our safety. But I believe we have an inherent mechanism in us that's biologically driven to protect our habitat. And maybe some of these attitudes, this tipping point is when people feel like their habitats are being breached too much and that's it. They can no longer tolerate a couple of geese at the park. There's a hundred geese that set people over the edge and then they know they, they would, they want them gone. I don't know. It's an interesting topic to me anyways. So bear attacks. Um, last year was a tragic, tragic year in Alberta for, um, for grizzly attacks, uh, a couple fatalities. Um, in, on May 12th, uh, there was a close call in Alberta in the Kananaskis area where a grizzly bear charged uh, an individual on a bicycle uh, in the Kananaskis uh, park area. Uh, nothing happened, just a um, bit of a pursuit. person probably had to pedal a little faster. So luckily for bear and cyclist, nothing happened there. It was still obviously a concern to parks officials and wildlife managers in Alberta because of what did happen last year. That would have been uh, probably categorized as a close call. Um, I kind of see it maybe as a positive experience for the, the cyclist. Maybe look at um, the, the upside of it being a little bit of a uh, free fitness performance motivation, a uh, bit of an enhancer, probably better than taking supplements to have a grizzly bear come out and chase you on a bike trail um, than any protein powder supplements that you can take. So your uh, performance for the day was probably um, upped a little bit because your motivation was a little bit more severe. However, in British Columbia around June 14th and 15th, there were a couple incidents of bears uh, biting, attacking people in the Pemberton area north of Whistler. Uh, a black bear was killed by conservation officers up there, and they said both of these incidents of people being um, attacked or threatened by the by the bear was because of off-leash dogs. Golden Ears Provincial Park, one of the lower mainland um, largest parks, uh, also had a problem with a black bear that they shut the park down and the bear was trapped and um, put down. The bear beginning into attractants in the campground. It was breaking into vehicles to get at garbage and food. And in one incident, the bear just strolled into the open door of a trailer while the people were inside. So that bear was um, that was uh, deemed dangerous and and put down. So yeah, kind of a, a, a again another one of these stories in British Columbia that kind of gets everyone you know fired up when when bears are put down. Uh, been all all of these cases so far uh, in Canada have not resulted in any any harm uh, to people, and unfortunately, a few black bears in BC uh, have had to be killed because of it. Now, on the topic of having to put down black bears in the province of BC, that is a function of the BC Conservation Officer Service and conservation officers um, that deal with complaints. The 
number one priority of a conservation officer in the province is upholding um, a commitment to public safety. Um, so in any circumstance of anything, a, a conservation officer in the field will always prioritize human safety over, say, something like a poaching or an animal hit on the highway or, you know, those sorts of things. So uh, that's always the protocol. And in some cases, these uh, calls about problem back black bears conflicts uh, result in an officer going out, assessing a situation and deciding whether or not to uh, give the bear some time to move on, giving a landowner an abatement order to remove attractants and garbage and foods, which is a lot of the cases, uh, or whether or not the bear needs to be um, trapped or, or killed on the spot because of the risk to people there is too great. So in 2021, there were 615 black bears and grizzly bears total killed in British Columbia because of uh, uh, human bear conflict. Now, there's a recent story published uh, in the newspaper about this call for an external oversight public board uh, that would oversee conservation officers' decisions to put down black bears. And along with that, there's been public calls that the conservation officers need to wear body cameras so the footage of the actual um, event in the field could be reviewed by some sort of an external board. One of the stories I read, I think it was, uh, it was in all of the black press news outlets across BC. I read it in my local Cranbrook Bailey Townsman or whatever. Um, there's this bear safety teacher. Uh, I believe she's down on the coast. Her name is Ellie Lamb. Um, she teaches bear safety, and she's one of the ones that is calling for this external oversight board and body cameras. Um, she said that she believes body cameras and, ex and an external board would be the best way to achieve transparency. So I'm not sure what we mean by transparency. Um, conservation officers have a protocol they have to make decisions they're implementing things um, implementing their decisions uh, in the field I don't see this as being an issue where the service is not being transparent about when bears are destroyed or why they're being destroyed anyways I think this is just a case of you know the compassionate conservation and sort of not wanting any bears to be destroyed or, or you know you know fewer than what are which would be great. Um, the leading cause of, of bears being killed in this province, uh, black bears is primarily due to unsecured attractants. Look at the last story in Golden Ears Provincial Park was to do with garbage and food in a provincial campground. Uh, and grizzly bear um, deaths in this province, the leading cause now that there's no longer hunting are bears getting run over by cars, trains, and being uh, put down because of conflict situations of primarily due to food attractants. So yeah, it would be great to reduce the number of bears that are killed. Um, however, 615 sounds like a lot of bears. Um, it is if you piled them all up at the same time in the same place, it'd be a lot of bears. But I don't think you can look at it that way. Uh, for me anyways, I know there are people out there that are passionate about one life, one individual. Does it live or die? Does it deserve to live or die? Um, I get that. 
I'm looking at this from a higher level, more holistic perspective. The number of bears that are killed in British Columbia are not a conservation concern. British Columbia is one of the largest jurisdictions in all of North America. The province of British Columbia basically covers the entire uh, Western United States from the Washington border to the Mexican border, takes in all of the Western states. That's how big we are. Almost a million square kilometers. Our province is so big. Population estimates of black bears are between 140 to 180,000 black bears in the province. Uh, very high densities in some areas like northeastern BC. So really... <clears throat> From a conservation or species perspective, 650 that are killed uh, in conflict, in my opinion, it it's definitely isn't a conservation concern um, or a population or a species um, level concern. From a transparency uh, perspective and efficiency of what our BC conservation officers do, I don't think it's an issue either. So in 2021, the BC Conservation Officers Service received almost 23,000 problem bear complaint calls. So they assess those calls because they have to prioritize and respond to them. Like I said, the priority is always public safety. So out of those 23,000 calls, 11% of them were deemed that an officer needed to uh, investigate and assess the situation in the field. So 11% of those 23,000 calls had an officer attend on site. Only 2.7% of those 23,000 calls ended up in a decision after an assessment was made that the bear needed to be killed for public safety reasons. Uh, in two years ago, that was about 3.2% of the calls, uh, and the previous year to that was about 3.1%. So roughly over the last several years in British Columbia, the BC conservation officers are responding to public complaints of bear conflict, of which the outcome, about 97% of those complaint calls result in a bear that doesn't get killed. Only around 3% of all of the problem complaints that are filed result in a bear being put down. Now again, for an area as large as British Columbia, 944,000 square kilometers, 5 million people, 160-ish thousand black bears in the province, 15,000, 12 to 15,000 grizzly bears. Really, this is not in my mind, an intolerable or unacceptable number. I think the BC Conservation Officer Service does a fantastic job in mitigating these calls in how to screen, assess what they need to uh, uh, be in the field for, and then what bears are left to go about their way when they're actually managing people and not the bear is the problem. Uh, it only results in about 3% of these entire problem complaints resulting in a bear being put down. That, to me, is an incredibly good performance metric, and in my opinion, does not warrant any type of additional bureaucracy of any type of public external oversight board or body cameras. There is absolutely no, in my opinion, there is no rationale to warrant 
such an action. So if you want to look at it in a different way, it was annually, there's about six and a half bears for every 10,000 square kilometers that run into conflict with people um, that are destroyed. Another way of looking at it. Either way, I think BC does a great job in mitigating complaints down to the number of bears that are severe enough that public safety warrants them being taken out. Now, I know there's groups in BC and individuals that do not agree with that. They would like to see no bears um, put down for, for any reasons whatsoever. They're continuing to push this agenda. They're continuing to put it into the public light. They're continuing to make it a headache for politicians, for the BC Conservation Officer Service. And I don't know, I think we're coming to a time in British Columbia that the focus, attention, and the resources of the Conservation Officer Service needs to stay focused on their role, which is the enforcement of laws and compliance with laws, Wildlife Act primarily, and the Environmental Management Act. If you don't know, one of the big jobs of the BC Conservation Officer Service is investigating and laying charges on industrial pollution in the province because that falls under the Environmental Management Act, as well as they can enforce a myriad of other uh, provincial um, regulations and legislation as well. So these things take away officers' time. They got to come to external board reviews, hearings. Um, you know, is this going to lead to the thing where an officer then is suspended until an external board comes up with a decision, reviewing body camera footage and all this kind of stuff? For, for what? It's like, it, it's not warranted. Public safety and conservation does not warrant this. So to me, if these individuals and these groups are going to continue to push this agenda, make it a political issue that diverts attention and resources away from doing good conservation law enforcement, then maybe it's just time for decision makers in British Columbia to say, hey, our BC Conservation Officer Service is no longer going to deal with problem wildlife. So bears and urban deer that are problems, municipalities need to deal with that. If we're talking about animals that are hit on the highways and these sorts of things, if there's calls for um, professionals like veterinarians or the only ones that are qualified to assess uh, whether an animal is suitable for rehabilitation um, or will survive, um, then let wildlife biologists and veterinarians deal with animals that are got busted backs and you know broken legs and stuff on the side of the highway and, and take that responsibility away from the COS. Putting down a bear that's uh, habituated and could be a threat to campers uh, is a decision an officer is trained for, can make in the field. They're also trained to look at injured animals and say, I'm going to give this animal the benefit of a doubt. Deer can live on three legs. They can leave it or go, this animal is suffering. It's going to die from this injury and I'm going to humanely put it down on, this, on the side of the highway or, or, or whatever. They're trained for that. But these groups keep coming forward and saying they're not trained for it. They're not professionals. They don't know what they're doing. They're making decisions and just putting down animals when they don't have to. And I'm just like, there's a tipping point at some point. I just think the province should say, fine, we're going to privatize, privatize uh, nuisance wildlife management. They do do it in the state somewhere. So if organizations, uh, anti-whatever organizations in BC or individuals that don't like 
how the conservation officer service protects public safety, then get yourself a business, bid on these private contracts, pay for the training, pay for the firearms training, uh, pay for the insurance and absorb the liability of making a wrong decision where an individual citizen of the province sues you for millions and millions of dollars because you were injured by an animal that you decided not to euthanize as a threat to public safety and privatize it and and relieve the, the, the conservation officer service of having to deal with uh, these things and um, maybe the juice, you know, the the juice isn't just worth the squeeze. Let them go out and continue to focus on industrial pollution and poaching and those sorts of things, which I think the majority of British Columbians want our law enforcement officers to focus on poaching and unsustainable use of the land. All right, that's kind of a rant, but rants are good. <laughs> um, on the topic of grizzly bears in BC, in mid-May, um, a class action lawsuit was filed with the Supreme Court of British Columbia. So uh, Outfitters Ron Fleming and Brenda Nelson, who own Love Brothers and Lee Outfitters in Northern BC, on behalf of guides and outfitters in the province, are seeking certification of their class action lawsuit. They are arguing that the 2017 ban on grizzly bear hunting has caused outfitters that had grizzly bear quota undue financial harm and was not warranted by conservation concerns. So their petition to the Supreme Court, um, they say has been devastating to more than a hundred guide outfitter businesses in British Columbia that relied on grizzly bear hunting as part of their business. So they're not, as I understand it, they the outfitters, the class action lawsuit is not seeking to reinstate the hunt they're seeking for compensation to business losses because of this decision. So that's going to be interesting. I don't know if the courts have accepted the class action lawsuit to move forward to come before a judge. An outfitter's license in BC is a crown issued tenure. It's basically the same as a trapping license, as a mining license, as a forestry license. It's a crown issued tenure to utilize and run a business off of the um, harvest of a natural resource in the province of which royalties are paid back to the government. It's part of our economy. Now, I don't know, and I don't know, having lived here my whole life, if I've ever seen an instance where government has made a decision for whatever reason that's affected a crown tenure holder and then they've been paid compensation for that decision. The big one is always forestry decisions. When areas are set aside for old growth, uh, when areas are taken out of forest production land base and made into a park or, 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 or whatever, I don't know that the forest companies have ever been financially compensated for the loss of that timber over a certain number of rotations, or if they're just say like, suck it up, it's a crown tenure. Um, and government can make whatever decisions they want. And if it impacts you, read the fine print. We don't have to compensate you for that. The government can issue a tenure to a forest company to go into an area, extensively clear-cut an area. The trappers could say, you've devastated my Martin population. I'm out thousands of dollars every winter. They don't get compensated for that. They're just like, sorry, so sad. Um, suck it up. We don't 
pay for um, compensation of lost revenue due to government decisions on Crown tenure. That's kind of been my take uh, in British Columbia with Crown issued tenure. So I don't know if this class action lawsuit over the loss of the grizzly bear hunt is going to stick. Um, they're flinging it against the wall to see if the courts will accept it. And then potentially, potentially in British Columbia, we could see a judge side with the outfitters, which could become a precedent setting decision, which could have impacts across all of these crown held tenures. I'll keep you up to date on this story. A couple episodes ago, I talked about this controversial deer call in, um, Longueuil, the city of Longueuil, um, near Montreal. So their white-tailed deer population kind of got um, out of control, um, put people over the tipping point. Um, they no longer loved deer. They hated deer. Uh, they wanted people, some people in the city wanted action taken to get rid of the deer. Uh, apparently, they, the population was uh, so high, it was starting to wreak havoc on some of the ecosystems in a nearby um, park, ecological reserve area, if I recall correctly. And, but that's been met by opposition of the folks that uh, want to uh, save the deer. So this story continues. So a lawyer and animal rights activist uh, in uh, Quebec and Frank Goldwater uh, has voiced her opposition to city council in Longueuil of this plan to capture and, and kill the white-tailed deer. She's recently filed a court petition on behalf of herself, the Wildlife Rescue Organization's Savantage Animal Rescue, and some other local animal rights activists. Miss um, Goldwater is asking the court to approve a plan for rescue organizations to voluntarily trap the deer, sterilize them, you know, my thoughts on sterilizing wild deer, and ultimately move those deer that are fit to be moved to wildlife sanctuaries or other municipalities that have offered land where the deer can be re relocated. So the folks in New Brunswick called and said, you know, back in the 1990s, people in Toronto went over the tipping point, hated these Canada geese, they rounded up 4,000 of them, sent them over to us here in New Brunswick, and now they're a pain in our ass. So there's a lesson to be learned here. This plan to capture these deer, even though they're talking about sterilizing them, doesn't seem to work very well. Um, and move them to other municipalities, is this going to cause somebody else a headache down the road? They'll have more deer that they're going to want to get rid of. So we're going to have a traveling roadshow in Canada of moving unwanted deer from town to town to town. Does not seem like a good idea. Remove these animals on an annual harvest, butcher them, and get the food out to people in the community that would love to have some deer venison. That's what I would do if I were the judge. In Newfoundland, Labrador, uh, the government brought into effect a new amendment to its Off-Road Act. Uh, effective May 19th, uh, the wearing of helmets on all off-road vehicles will be mandatory. That's wild. Um, so you didn't have to wear a helmet on an ORV in Newfoundland, Labrador prior to May 19th, May 19th 2022. 
The one exception where helmets will not be required is for hunting and trapping activities involving frequent stops where the speed is less than 20 kilometers an hour. You know, that actually makes a lot of sense to me. So I completely get it. Um, if the speed is slow and you're hunting or you're trapping, you're on and off your machine, you're doing whatever, if you fall off, you're probably not going to hurt yourself um, just putting along a trail or an old road. Um, so good on you, Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, this is actually a regulation that uh, affects hunting and trapping that seems to have some common sense and um, makes sense. So it's kind of refreshing to see a decision being made um, that affects hunting and trapping in this country that can actually say, hey, I support that one. Uh, back in the springtime, wintertime, and last fall, I was covering some stories about how people uh, down in Stanley Park in the Vancouver area of Vancouver um, were hating on the coyotes because they were uh, biting people in Stanley Park. Some people liked them, some people didn't like them. Uh, coyotes obviously reached a tipping point in and around Vancouver and the Stanley Park area. Before there wasn't enough of them, they were minding their own business. Somehow something changed. They pushed people over the tipping point. Coyotes started biting people. Maybe the people pushed the coyotes over the tipping point and coyotes no longer tolerated people and they wanted to bite them. Anyways, um, so that, that whole story was, was going on uh, down in the lower mainland. But it was also happening in Alberta, in Calgary, in Edmonton areas, so some attacks on dogs, some threatening things with coyotes and stuff. And so it quieted down a little bit in Alberta, but it's, it's flared up again this spring. So you got coyotes, uh, females that are denning, they got pups, they're protective of the dens. Um, they're in the business of moving pups once they're big enough, you know, moving them to new locations. People are out walking their dogs. They don't have uh, dogs on a leash, all that kind of stuff. So that's kind of flared up. Uh, people are all up in arms about this in the city of Calgary. Uh, to the point where one of the stories I read is they said parents won't let their kids outside because they fear for them. It, it's apparently that bad. So, I don't know. Um, man, there must be a whole lot of rural folk in Calgary that are growing up on farms and generation after generation of kids and, and cowboy tough kids. <laughs> They're probably looking at this going... You're now deciding you need to keep your kids inside because there's coyotes. It's like, hey, we've raised like five generations of ranchers out here and we've always had coyotes. We use our dogs to keep the coyotes away from the farmhouse and our kids. Anyways, that would be an interesting interview <laughs> with somebody. However, forget about coyotes in Alberta. That is not a big threat, not a big concern. What is the concern, according to Dr. Ryan Brook from the University of Saskatchewan, is super pigs. Super pigs are soon going to start invading Alberta cities. The Alberta town of Lamont has already got a population of invasive wild pigs looming on the outskirts of town that once they decide to move into town, they are going to make coyotes look like baby ducks. Um, Dr. Ryan Brook, who Curtis and I have had on the Hunter Conservationist podcast, 
amazing guy, Canada's leading uh, researcher on the problem of invasive wild pigs in this country. Uh, I think it was like episode four or whatever. We actually flew out and met him at the university in Saskatchewan. Great interview. He said that wild pigs are the worst invasive large mammal on the planet. So that kind of puts uh, coyotes a little lower on the keep your children under lock and key type category. Uh, in Calgary, uh, people in Lamont should be fearful of their children over super pigs about to invade the town. So this was kind of interesting. Uh, the town of Lamont, um, one of the rules uh, to keep in mind over wild pigs in the city is you should uh, keep a safe distance and do not corner or provoke the animal. Uh, which includes using a flash while you're taking a picture of it. But if you do see one, they want you to safely and from a distance take a picture of it and send it to the city. But don't use your flash because it will provoke you. Super pigs set to invade an Alberta town near you. Uh, a while ago, I was talking about a story in Ontario of uh, the Ontario government opening up a cull hunt on cormorants. So the seabirds that have um, increased and proliferated uh, over the last century, uh, almost having been wiped out uh, from overhunting, their populations have pushed people over the tipping point and they no longer like cormorants or tolerate cormorants. Uh, they want them their populations culled, uh, especially in the sporting community. Uh, there seems to be this huge concern and outcry over the massive increase in cormorant colonies. Uh, they're devastating game fish populations. Um, they're um, shitting on everything and all the vegetation and these colonies like, like nuke the ground that they, uh, they live on. And so they want these colonies called back. Um, and they did. In Ontario, they opened up a uh, free-for-all kind of hunting season on cormorants. Well, Newfoundland and Labrador government has joined suit. Now, and they are now addressing public concerns over the growing uh, population of the double-crested cormorant. Um, so you will have to apply for a permit in Newfoundland and Labrador to cull cormorants and they'll only issue those permits under very strict conditions. If you operate a fish farm, you can get a permit to cull cormorants if they're coming in and eating your, your stock, or you can apply for a permit to cull, shoot cormorants if they are near fish-bearing waters, which I think would be the only place that a fish-eating seabird would probably be found. So. Anyways, Newfoundland and Labrador is, uh, it's not without its controversy. Just like in Ontario, there's people that were completely opposed to this. A little while ago, I did a story on eels. Um, and this was completely new to me that there is a commercial fishery for baby eels uh, in eastern Canada. They're called elvers. And so that, that was completely a new thing to me. So the the fishery uh is in nova scotia and new brunswick and i think also down in maine in the u.s so they harvest these um baby eels they're just like little earthworm sized things 
um, from the rivers in Nova Scotia and New Brunswick. They're commercial licenses for them. They're regulated by Department of Fisheries and Oceans. So these elvers are the most valuable fish species by weight in Canada. And right now at current market prices, they're worth about $5,000 a kilogram. I have no idea what goes on in the illicit drug trade, but I wonder if there's anything out there that's worth $5,000 a kilo. Maybe, maybe that's cheap. I don't know. It's not my thing. But anyways, for a fish species, a commercial fish species worth 5,000 bucks a kilo, man, no wonder there's some controversy going on uh, over these things. So there has been controversy. Um, in 2020, DFO shut down um, an entire uh, fishery uh, over in the Maritime Provinces because of the conflict with uh, First Nations from the Mi'kmaq harvesters in Nova Scotia. Um, basically, DFO said that their harvesters, the First Nation harvesters, were overwhelming their ability to manage the fisheries. There's been a conflict between Aboriginal harvesters and non-Indigenous harvesters with commercial licenses on rivers in Nova Scotia and New Brunswick. I believe when you got something that's worth this much, there's probably an illicit underground trade and severe poaching uh, operation. So what this story was all about is about a uh, seizure of these elvers that were I guess, unregulated or contraband ones. They were uh, in containers to go out of Halifax International Airport destined for uh, Asia somewhere. And it was about $90,000 worth of these elvers. So they go to Asia and then they're raised in fish farms in Asia to adulthood. And then the adult eels are sold as food on the Asian um, um, food markets, fish farms and stuff. So crazy. Uh, but I, I've had eel on, on my sushi. It's good. Smoked eel. I can completely understand that. One of the controversies around this story is that normally if DFO seizes a commercial fishing catch, um, they try as best as possible if they're alive to dump them back in, say like crabs or whatever, uh, or they try to move these to a buyer and get them into market of which DFO then can recover the money and turn it back into conservation and enforcement programs. So there's actually a bunch of controversy around this uh, shipment of elvers, uh, the baby eels, in that um, DFO hasn't come right out and said it, but most of the stuff I've read is that they killed all of these eels. Uh, DFO said they didn't know where they came from, so they didn't want to be dumping them back into natural waters with, you know, not understanding genetics, subpopulations, potential parasites, diseases, all those sorts of things. But there's a bunch of people who are quite upset about this because they're saying, man, like we could have taken those, done your seizure, evidence thing, laid the charges, and then at least got these um, into the market and then got the money back to be able to turn back into conservation and enforcement programs, so... Seals have been a big topic uh, all around Canada and their growing population, especially the gray seals. Uh, advocates in the um, commercial fishing sector are saying that they're wreaking havoc on um, fish stocks and crustacean stocks uh, in Atlantic Canada. However, a recent study population estimate by, done by DFO um, of the gray seal population they are estimating around 366,000 um, in uh, 2021 estimate. 
they said the population of gray seals um, appears to be slowing. Uh, it's a little bit less than the previous years. And for the first time in the last 60 years of monitoring pup production on Sable Island, um, they've seen a decrease in pup production. Uh, Sable Island, the Sable Island colony of gray seals produces about 80% of Canada's gray seal population in Atlantic Canada. So um, some science going on there. I have not seen any stories whether or not the commercial fishing sector uh, is in agreement or disagreement with this. Uh, if I had to put money on it, I would say they're probably still going to come out and say based on the commercial fishing sector and their experience out on the ocean that um, gray seal population is probably higher than DFO's estimate and they're continuing to be uh, a problem. So if you want to know a little bit more about seals in Canada's seal industry and seal meat, Curtis and I did a podcast, uh, Hunter Conservationist podcast, uh, a couple of months ago with uh, Rami Vajois, uh, Executive Director of the Canadian Seal Products uh, Association, and that's on um, all of the podcast platforms. Really informative. Uh, something, again, living out here in the West, I just did not know um, the extent of Canada's seal industry and how cool seal meat and seal products are. A little while ago, I did a story on this uh, issue of night hunting in Manitoba. Um, the Manitoba government brought in legislation to crack down and prohibit um, night hunting with the use of lights. Uh, then that decision was challenged by the Pegui First Nations. Um, so the Pegui First Nations is taking the government of Manitoba to court saying that this decision to curb night hunting and to only allow um, indigenous hunters to hunt at night with lights via permits uh, is unconstitutional. It goes against their constitutional rights and culture of having always hunted at nighttime. So that is uh, a court challenge that's before the Manitoba uh, courts right now. Now, the Manitoba Wildlife Federation has applied to the Manitoba courts to become an intervener in this court case between the Pegui First Nations and the government of Manitoba. Manitoba Wildlife Federation has been a huge proponent and push behind um, outlawing night hunting, even for Indigenous First Nations hunters in Manitoba. The Federation is saying that this is an extremely dangerous, dangerous activity. They've even done demonstrations of uh, nighttime hunting with lights and how even trained hunters were unable to determine what was behind the animal that they were shooting at nighttime. Uh, according to the Manitoba Wildlife Federation, night hunting has led to the death and injury of livestock throughout Manitoba. And it has also resulted in deaths of people. Um, so they are applying for intervener status, which means they have a vested interest in representing the public's interest in this court case and can be uh, heard by a judge in this court decision. A couple years ago, springs ago, or last spring maybe, Curtis and I 
um, did an episode with Dr. Keith Monroe from the Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters that was talking about the return, the full return, full reinstatement of Ontario spring black bear hunt. It was over a decade worth of science and working with the government of Ontario, the Ministry of Natural Resources, um, to try to reverse uh, the previous decision to ban spring black bear hunting in Ontario. There were some pilot hunts. And that full reinstatement of the hunt returned last year, um, or a couple years ago, just remember the date, 2020, I believe. Uh, but since then, so, so most of the black bear interest in hunting and that harvest was in northern Ontario, kind of away from the more populated southern half. Uh, but recently, uh, the Ministry of Natural Resources and Forestry in Ontario are saying that a lot more bears and an increase in bears being harvested in wildlife management in southern Ontario, um, they're seeing an uptick in the numbers of hunters that want to hunt bears in southern Ontario and the number of bears that are being taken. Part of it seems to be is, a, is an increase in interest of bear hunting for meat during the pandemic and first-time hunters wanting to get out. They live in the more populated areas. They're wanting to hunt wildlife management units closer to where they live rather than traveling all the way into Northern Ontario. So the Ontario Federation of uh, uh, Anglers and Hunters are continuing to lobby the province to expand the bear hunting opportunities into parts of Southern Ontario that are currently not approved for bear hunting, including some areas fairly close um, to Toronto, um, just to the north of Toronto and in the southwest populated areas of, of Toronto. So um, cool to see um, sustenance hunters in Ontario, first time hunters interested in bears as a amazing form of wild venison and the Federation in Ontario lobbying to get some more areas opened up for those hunters. Ontario Federation of Hunters and Anglers do such a great job. I also talked a previous episode about this uh, big decision that came down uh, by DFO um, in the early spring, which was a full-blown moratorium on the commercial fisheries of mackerel this year uh, in Eastern Canada. After that announcement was made, um, the tuna fishing industry came out and said, hey, hold the bus. Uh, that pulls the rug out from underneath of our fishery, which is both a tuna commercial fishery, which is done by uh, line fishing, and um, the tourism sector for blue tin, blue tuna fishery, guided fishing trips and whatnot, because tuna fishing, bluefish tuna, fishing relies on the use of live mackerel for bait and so they said that's um yeah going to affect our ability to um, catch tuna um, for guided tours as well as for the commercial sector so anyways uh dfo listened they uh to the tuna fishermen in the industry and they've uh, made an exemption for tuna fishermen they can catch 20 mackerel per day to use for live bait uh, DFO said uh, in a statement, live mackerel are the only viable options for the tuna fisheries uh, and this decision ensures the viability of Canada's bluefin tuna fishery, an industry worth more than $10 million a year to the fishery and tourism sectors. So apparently 20 mackerel per day in the tuna fishery accounts for two tons, two tons or 20 tons? can't remember 
um, of, of mackerel over the course of the year. But previously, the quotas on mackerel were 8,000 tons. So in the statement, DFO said even at that number, um, total number of mackerel that will be harvested for the tuna industry, they see it as being a fraction of a percent of the previous quota, which was a conservation concerns given declines in the stocks, but they don't see it being an issue from a conservation perspective, allowing the tuna fishery to take 20, tuna fishermen to take 20 up to 20 mackerel a day for, for bait. Told you that was a lot, but that's what's going on around Canada, and we will see you in the next episode.